Good morning again. We are, uh, we're coming now to uh, what is, uh, you know, for some of us, uh, kind of a familiar passage. Uh, if you grew up in the church, you probably uh, heard this passage referred to a lot. It's, uh, it's uh, the Apostle Paul's uh, famous sermon in the, in the city of downtown Athens, and I don't mean Athens, Georgia, downtown Athens, Greece, where Paul gives this spectacular presentation of the gospel to anyone who will listen to him. Uh, right before this, he is uh, in a town not nearly as uh, big as, uh, as uh, Athens called Berea, about 150 miles away. And uh, up till now in the book of Acts, you know, sort of like Paul and his ministry team, they go into a city and they talk about Jesus and they get in trouble and they get detained or they get arrested or they find out that they're going to get in trouble, <laughs> detained and probably arrested. And then sometimes they just sneak out and then go to another city. Well, this is what just happened. There was a rumor that they were going to move against Paul and uh, so they smuggle him out of Berea. And, and then he goes to Athens as if, uh, I don't know, did he think he was going to go to Athens and maybe lay low? <laughs> I don't think so, because he doesn't lay low. I don't know what he thought. I think maybe he thought, I need a spa day. I'm going to go to Athens and have a spa day. But instead, he goes to Athens, and well, we'll see what happens in just a minute. They smuggle him out. He's by himself, and he starts to preach the gospel. Uh, so that's just a little bit of what happens right right before this. Let's read our text together. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth. And he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him. Though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said. For we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed in all of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. 
Open our ears, O Lord, that we would hear the gospel. May your Holy Spirit be the one that teaches us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. My friends, my sisters and brothers in Christ, God desires for us to know this basic claim about the gospel. Human beings are meant to share in the very life of God, our creator and redeemer. Let that sink in for a little bit. Human beings are made to share in the very life of God, our creator and redeemer. The other thing that's very basic to the message of the gospel is that quite often we run away from that. We run very hard away from that in the opposite direction. God wants for us to return his love to us, to him. He wants us to return the love that he has for us because And this is, I'm going to steal the title of this book that just came out from Jamie Smith at uh, Calvin Seminary. The reason why God wants us to return his love is because you are what you love. You become more and more like what you love. Now that idea flows from the great insight of St. Augustine. When he thinks about what constitutes a people, in that classic book that he wrote, really huge tome in the early 5th century, City of God, Augustine argues this thesis. A people is a group that shares a common love. The better the thing that is loved, the better the people. The better the thing that is loved, the better the people. Uh, Riffing on that, um, one theologian puts it this way. This is Mark Husbands from Northwestern College over in Iowa. Shout out for Iowa and for our denomination, RCA. (laughs) Like Reformed Theologian Day, I guess. Quoting Jamie Smith and, uh, and Mark Husbands in the same homily. This is what Husband says. And I just think it's, I want to give credit where credit's due, not to name drop, but I didn't come up with this. He riffs on Augustine's insight about about, uh, what constitutes a people. He says, the church then exists as a people to show the world that there is something worthy of love, Jesus Christ. That's not the first thing I think of when I get up in the morning. Where's the coffee? Oh, man, it's going to be a rough morning. I don't have any coffee. You know, any number of things you know, can distract us, but this, this basic idea, this fundamental reality that, that we exist, what a humbling thing. We exist to show to the world that there is something worthy of love, and his name is Jesus. That's what Paul's trying to get across to the people in Athens in his outdoor preaching. That's what he's trying to get across, among a few other things, but that's a very fundamental 
thing. And we'll see how it comes out here in a minute. That's what Paul is trying to get across to the Athenians. You know, it's not in the text, but as Luke introduces us to Paul in Athens, he says that Paul is looking around the city. And the language that Luke uses, it be translated this way, that he sees Athens as a veritable forest of idols. Like everywhere he looks, he sees another idol. This would be a problem for a good Jew, right? A real problem, you know. Wow. I've never seen anything quite like this. Um, and, and Luke tells us that, that, that Paul is, is so deeply and utterly disturbed by this. Luke uses the word paroxysm. He says Paul has a, a spasm, basically. A, you know, kind of an emotional disturbance so deeply within him that it, it, it shakes him to his very core. And so, I was joking earlier about maybe Paul went to Athens to relax a little bit. But, you know, if he did, that relaxation is over right that minute. That visceral reaction that Paul has to this veritable forest of of idols, that leads him to proclaim to his listeners that their ways of thinking about the divine... Their ways of thinking about the meaning of life had not led them to recognize who God truly is. It's confrontational in that way. Now, let me just say just a word or two about the idiom here, you know, that Paul is, <laughs> Paul is open-air preaching, right? Now, um, I don't do that. And, uh, you know, in our culture, I fear that open-air preaching always feels like a power play. Um, It wasn't like that then. Paul dies as a martyr. He's always getting run out of town. The early church has no power. It was culturally acceptable to exchange vigorously ideas in the public square. This makes sense in this setting. And, and Paul uses, uh, quite ingeniously as his jumping off point for his sermon, he, he uses uh, a reference point to, to an idol that he saw in the city with the inscription, to an unknown God. And Paul says to the Athenians, I want to talk to you about the God that you say is unknown. I want to tell you who he is. Now, the text that precedes what we read out loud this morning, um, we see how it is that Paul gets to the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus is this, 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 this part of, of Athens where people often gather to exchange these kinds of ideas. That, that place and the Agora, the marketplace, where Paul is doing open-air preaching. But the Areopagus is more of a place where Someone could be brought to trial, or someone could be escalated up to this point where, okay, we're going to see what you have to say and see if we find it acceptable or not. Now, now one of the things that is said of, of, of Paul among those who are listening to him 
they say, what is this babbler talking about? He seems to be talking to us about foreign deities. Well, you know, that is a supercharged phrase because that's the charge that was made against Socrates several hundred years earlier. When Socrates is brought up on the charge of preaching foreign deities, and that issues forth in the sentence of death for Socrates. So, you know, some people are saying, what is he talking about? He's talking about Jesus and the resurrection. Is he talking about foreign deities? Well, let's bring him up to the Areopagus and find out. Now, an interesting aside, Luke goes out of his way to say that they were concerned that he might be preaching about foreign deities. You think to yourself, well, he believed in one God. How could they be confused that he was preaching foreign deities, plural? Well, Luke says he was preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. Well, it just so happens that resurrection ends up being a female singular noun. And so <laughs> we think that what, <laughs> what they thought was that Paul was talking about two new gods, Jesus and his goddess friend, Anastasia. <laughs> you get it? It's like, if you are used to polytheism, you know, it's like, I don't know if he's talking about one god or two gods, you know, and you say, well, surely he must be talking about two gods. I mean, why would you just have one? A little bit of Monty Python humor here. Anyone remembers the, 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 the quest for the, no, this is from Life of Brian, where Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount. His blessed are the peacemakers, and the you know, person way back in the back says, what did he say? Blessed, blessed are the cheesemakers? No, 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 don't take that literally. It's just a general blessing for those in the dairy industry. If, you, if you're in the dairy industry, you hear blessed are the cheesemakers. If you're accustomed to polytheism, Jesus in the resurrection, oh, Jesus and his goddess, right? His goddess friend, Anastine, Anastasia. That's the Greek word for resurrection. Anyway, Paul is, is talking about Jesus and the resurrection, and they say, what is this guy talking about? Foreign deities? And then Paul thinks, uh-oh, that's actually how you get in trouble here, is for talking about foreign deities. And so then he says, nope, I'm going to talk to you about that deity that you call the unknown God. And I'm going to tell you who he is. So at, at what is once a tactical move, perhaps, to save himself from a trial, an actual trial, where he'd be in real trouble, also becomes such a tender way of talking about the gospel. What it is that you've said, or at least some of you said, that you don't know about, you know, please let me tell you about him. So that's what Paul does. Now here's my little bullet point of the bullet point summary of, um, of Paul's sermon here that we just read. Number one, God made the world and he doesn't need anything. You can't make an image of God, for example, an idol. Because you're a creature. Number three, God has to reveal himself for you to know him. Number four, God is not far away. Number five, you are God's offspring. So find out what it means to be made in God's image. Number six, you know something of the truth of which I am speaking. You know something of the truth of which I am speaking, even if it's a faint knowledge. 
Deep inside of you, you know you're made for more than what you've resigned yourself to settling for. Next, the world belongs to God and is loved by God, and he will one day put all things in the right. Lastly, given all of this, you should repent and live into your purpose for which you were created. Come on, be on the right side of history and take your rightful place as a human being made in the image of God. Begin the journey home to Jesus. That's my bullet point recap of the summary of this sermon that Luke gives us here. The sermon Paul gave and even Luke's summary of it is a tour de force. In this compact message, Paul manages to avoid being charged with preaching foreign deities. And he manages to connect in a heartfelt way with his audience. He says, I'm just telling you about the one you say you don't know. But he's also the one that you talk about, even in your own poetry and literature. And then Paul quotes from at least one poet when he says that God is the one in whom we move, in whom we live, and in whom we have our being, for we too are his offspring. The other amazing accomplishment that Paul achieves in this extremely thoughtful piece of, of, of oratory is that he takes into account the views of his audience in a respectful way. There are four main categories of thinking with some overlapping between a couple of the categories. There are four basic categories of thinking about the nature of the divine and the meaning of life that would have been represented in Paul's listeners. And, and leading up to this text that you have in front of you, Paul clues us into a couple of those schools of thought. He says among those listening to him were Epicurean philosophers and Stoic philosophers. So first of all, first category, there were the Epicureans. Now, this is very broad brush, okay? <laughs> they believed that the gods exist, but they were a long way away. And our job here on earth as human beings is to make life as good as we can get it, but don't expect any help from the gods. Then there were the Stoics. Another, you know, broad brush again. They believe that the divine and the world are basically the same thing. Stoicism from this angle is essentially pantheism. Things are the way they are in the world, and there's not much you can do to change them. And high Stoicism, according to New Testament scholar Tom Wright, held that the end of the world would be a fiery destruction out of which would come a new world, but everything would be exactly the same as before. Well, that's fine if you're a wealthy elite. Not so great if you're not, right? Then there were the academics. The prominent philosopher Cicero, who lived around 50 BC, would have been one in that camp. Now, he wasn't there at this time, but his influence was. The academics would have argued that maybe... The gods are real, maybe not, can't really know, so just live as if they are. Half-hearted devotion, go through the religious motions because you never know. And then there were the basic idol folks, people that worshipped idols, people that went to the temples. They went to the temples, they worshipped the gods, they paid their tribute, 
Because that is how they perceive the world to work. The gods are fickle. and Who knows how you will fare. But you work your worship and you pray for a good result. You keep an idol or two around your house to maybe increase your chances of getting a blessing. Now think about the text that we just read. And see how Paul takes all four of these views into account in his brief remarks. Hey, Epicureans, don't think God is far away and unknowable. God is very intimate to you. You're made in God's image. Hey, Stoics, don't think the world is the same thing as the divine life and fated to be a certain way. The world was created by God, and God has intervened in history in Jesus to enable the world to begin a journey of transformation that will be consummated when God sets things to right in the judgment that brings forth the world to come. And hey, those of you whose lives are defined by worshiping idols and going to the temple, oh my, oh my. You were made for so much more. For so much more. And you can imagine Paul saying these things or things like them and gesturing with his hands in the direction of the Acropolis. From the Areopagus, you had a clear view of the Acropolis where all those temples were. And can't you imagine Paul looking over at the temples, looking at the people, and saying something to the effect, you're made for more than that. You're made for more than that. Saying to them, perhaps, as he pointed over to the temple, something like this, which is exactly kind of something like what he says. God doesn't live in temples made with human hands. And God doesn't need anything from you. You can't image God in an idol because God created you and you are his image. You are his child. It's not the other way around. And because he made you, he aims and desires to set that creative love at work in your life and in the world so that you can come home to him and share in the divine life. Now, there's so much here in this sermon. I mean, I have went through more edits than I think I've gone through in a long time just to get it down to a manageable size of, of remarks. So I feel like you've got to know a little bit about the historical context to get to the point where you can try to cull out of that some application for today. So I'm only going to try to make two applications with you from this, from this uh, sermon of Paul's. And the first one is this. God doesn't need anything. God doesn't need us. Now, at first glance, this seems like a really abstract statement. And 
and maybe not very promising in terms of yielding much in a way that, that makes a difference in our lives. You know, when you, when you wake up and you need your coffee in the morning. <laughs> or when you're lonely and you're wondering if anything that you do really matters. But I want to argue that if you plumb down into it a little bit, if you, or you dive down into it a little bit, you'll see that it matters a great deal. Because what flows from this truth is the very ground of reason for why we can trust God to give us good gifts. I've never been able to find a better treatment of this aspect of God's nature than Rowan Williams' treatment of it in his little book summarizing the Apostles' Creed called Tokens of Trust. I'm going to read just a little bit to you from that. We can trust, and this is quoting Williams, we can trust the maker of heaven and earth precisely because he is the maker of heaven and earth. And this isn't simply an appeal to the idea that God must know what he's doing because he's in charge. It says something about the character of God. God is the one unique source of everything, therefore there is nothing God is forced to do. So there can be no question of God's having to do anything at all that he doesn't want to do. And because he cannot need anything, because he contains all reality eternally and by nature, the only thing that can motivate his action is simply what he is, the kind of God he is, and what he does. What he does shows us the kind of God he is. This means that God can't have a selfish agenda because he can't want anything for himself except to be the way he is. So if the world exists because of his action, the only motivation for this is sheer unselfish love. He wants to give what he is to what isn't him. He wants difference to appear. He wants another to receive his joy and delight. He isn't bored and in need of company. He isn't frustrated and in need of help. We must get to grips with the idea that we don't contribute anything to God. That God would have been the same God if we had never been created. We exist because of an utterly unconditional generosity. The love God shows in creating us as much as in saving us is completely free. He doesn't owe us anything. He's chosen that we should exist. That's, and he has chosen to treat us always as lovable. He has thought that we are worth dying for. It's good news that God doesn't need us. Williams goes on to say, we might quite like to think that we're loved because we were nice and helpful to God. But this is a bit like imagining that God forgives us because we're good rather than making us good by forgiving us, as the Bible claims. So good news, God doesn't need anything. And that's why we can trust him. The second application I want to make here is, is the one that Paul brings to the Athenians when he quotes their own poets and from the body of his sermon in general. What he's saying to them is, <clears throat> you know deep inside that you're made to share in the divine life. You know that deep inside. And you also know deep inside 
that you're also able to recognize the death, the lifelessness, and the patterns of existence that befall us when we love the wrong things with the love that we're supposed to direct toward God. The gospel suggests to us that there's not a person in this room who doesn't know something about this. We've all loved people in the wrong way and brought hurt into their lives and into our lives because of that. We have had occasions in our life when, if we're honest, we've related to money, sex, power, as if they were gods to us. There is a reason why that feels wrong and serving dinner at Breakthrough Urban Ministries, our ministry partner, feels right. There is a reason why spending good time with our friends and family feels right instead of whatever selfish or lustful pattern of thinking or acting might hold temptation in the moment. There is a reason why it feels right to spend time with those who have very little power in order to lift them up instead of angling to manipulate or take advantage of others with the power that we may have. There is a reason why it feels right to use our speech to lift up others rather than gossip about them. And there is a reason why worshiping together on Sundays enables us to be more fully human. And the reason is because in God we live and we move and we have our being and because God is the maker of heaven and earth and because God made human beings to have a memory of who he is. And he wants us to return that love to him. Now, my friends, I just said there is a reason why when we worship together, we feel a rightness and an energy to it. There's a reason why we recognize ourselves at this table more accurately than we will recognize ourselves any other time during the week. When, when, when you are caught up in that obsession over something that is leading you away from fullness of life, you may be agitated about things that you've done in the past and wonder how you can have a future and, and that agitation about those things becomes so distracting that, that it, it, it saps all of your creative imaginative energy from your life. Remember, you learned the truth about who you were here. You're loved by God and he wants you to return that love the rest of your life. You can do it in any setting in which you find yourself. It may not be the setting that you thought you would have when you were 20 years old, but because you learned the truth about yourself here, the future is open to you because you belong to the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ and future belongs to him. So coming here, not because Grace Chicago Church is important, but because this is important. Coming here, we learn the truth about ourselves. And, and there's a reason why that resonates. Because we do know deep down inside 
that we belong to God. And we do know deep down inside that we will become more fully human when we return love to him. Miroslav Boff puts it this way. God doesn't need our praise to be God or to feel like God. We need to praise God to be truly ourselves, creatures made in the image of God. God doesn't need us. God is very close to us. That is good news. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.